1: Hello everyone. Today we have Dr. Anita Patel back on the podcast. She was with us back in March or April. It was episode 3 and she chatted with me about MISC, which was really informative and I highly suggest listening to it if you haven't already. And for those of you that don't know, Dr. Patel is a pediatric critical care physician, assistant professor and NIH funded researcher at Children's National Hospital in addition to being a yoga teacher. She uses her social media account to help educate and it's been incredibly informative throughout this past year and a half. So today's episode, will talk all about children and COVID. We talk about everything from the recent Pfizer press release with regards to the vaccine. We talk about the most up-to-date stats on misc in her hospital, as well as COVID cases, and a lot of other great goodies. So let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, Dr. Patel. Hello.
0: Good to be back. Thank you for having oh, I'm me. I'm so excited
1: to have you back. I'm excited. <laughs> so, to kind of <laughs> recap, the last interview we did, oh my gosh, it was in the spring. Yeah, it was and, forever ago. Yeah. And you were talking to us about MISC, which for those listening is multi system inflammatory syndrome in children. And we talked all about it, you know, what to look out for, how many cases you've seen, how to prepare if your child does get admitted with it. And again, you work at Children's National Hospital do, in Washington, D.C. So if anyone's seeing this, it's definitely going to be you guys. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So tell me any updates on that. I mean, obviously we've had this crazy delta variant yeah. that's come through this summer did that change things at all
0: yes i mean the truth is is that delta changed everything right i mean i you know and i don't think i'm saying anything different than what anyone is saying but but it's the truth delta changed everything but to answer your specific question about MISC so if everyone remembers, MISC doesn't happen at the time that you're exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And there's a reason why I said it like that. Because, you know, first of all, and we I'm not going to recap all of MISC, we did a whole pod on that. But it is important to remember, and I think this is a super important point that you don't have to be symptomatic and have like COVID-19 disease in order to develop MISC. And you know, we talked about this, a bunch of kids that we took care of, never had any symptoms and then landed in the hospital with MISC. So just a little recap on that. But to answer your question about MISC now, the truth is, is that because it happens anywhere from three to six weeks after the initial exposure and potential infection, we have not seen that surge. Now, having said that, you know, we've been kind of waiting with, uh, you know, holding our breath, essentially. And unfortunately, they're starting to trickle in. We are by no means at the numbers that we saw, you know, after the January surge. But I think we're unfortunately going to start getting another surge now. But have we gotten there yet? No. But again, we have been starting to see our first few cases and that's not unique to DC. It's really starting to be seen all over.
1: Now, do you think that that's just because the Delta variant just kind of peaked, you know, in like in the past like month or two? Or do you think maybe that the Delta variant just doesn't happen to cause MIS-C as frequently as the other initial strain? Or is it too early to tell?
0: I mean, I guess the conservative answer would be it's too early to tell, but I will tell you my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that is, and I guess it's an opinion sort of couched in facts rather, that, you know, what we are kind of, not kind of, we are at the peak of Delta now. Um, And fortunately, in some regions, they're seeing, starting to see a tiny downtrend, although I'll tell you nationally we're at the plateau of Delta. We're not, we have not yet really reached that downtrend to say that we're, you know, out of the woods. And I say that because I think because we're at the plateau and, you know, we're finally several months into Delta and more importantly, because kids are now really back together, they're back in school. You know, I think the timing of you know, starting to see a few cases trickle in, but seeing a real big surge about a month to a month and a half after school opened is is when we're going to see the real Delta surge. And I think that, you know, that is sort of corroborated with the fact that the number of COVID cases has increased so exponentially in kids in the past, honestly, I mean, just in the past two weeks, you know, we've right. had half a million cases of COVID in children and you know, to put that into some perspective, we've had 5.3 million cases of COVID in the since the start of the pandemic. So the fact that we've had half a million cases in just two weeks is is astronomical. You know, it, it really is. So I don't, I, I really don't think and I can't think of any biologic reason why Delta wouldn't cause MISC. I think it's just that, we haven't given it enough time to sort of develop.
1: Right. And of course, you said it's like three to six weeks after the initial. Yeah. So you're th- you know, you're looking at, you know, being infected on week one, which could have been two weeks ago, and you're not even going to see symptoms from MISC until three to six weeks out. So exactly, yeah, yeah. So that'll be really interesting to see what happens with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I've I've got to tell you, I kind of miss the days when MISC was like our biggest worry, you know, we were really fortunate in the pediatric community and that, yeah, we were seeing COVID cases, but it was still more of a rarity. Unfortunately, that's just not, we're not in that boat anymore. And I think that's why more and more pediatricians are becoming vocal, because we have to be now.
1: Yeah, so that's a good segue, I feel like into what have you been seeing with the Delta variant compared to what you were seeing when we talked last, uh, which was, you know, just the very few COVID cases that would come in because that was affecting children at a much lesser rate.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think before we go into that, this is sort of one of the most common questions I get. And I I know we're going to get to, you know, your your question, your rather your follower questions in a little bit. But I do want to tell you that Thus far, the data is still not suggesting that Delta is in any way preferring children. And I think that's really important to know. Now, children, unfortunately, are comprising much more of the COVID cases. You know, the AAP issues every week, their report. And right now, children are a quarter of all COVID cases in the United States, which is up from anywhere between 12 and 15% sort of throughout the pandemic. So the proportion of kids affected has absolutely increased. But again, the kids under 12 are also the children that are not even eligible for the COVID vaccine. And I think it's also important to say that even though you know our teens and tweens are eligible for the vaccine, only 46% of them are vaccinated with even one dose. So you know, we we just don't have good vaccination rates in any of our children less than 18. And then there's such a large proportion that aren't even eligible. So to say that it's preferentially attacking kids is wrong. But to say that, unfortunately, our kids are the most vulnerable is absolutely true, because they're not even eligible for the vaccine. So to answer your, I feel like you keep asking me questions. And then I, I answer with no. what? <laughs> back to the question i know i know i'm being so i'm being so rude god no, I'm not. no this is <laughs> Oh my, you no, know what? No. It's, it's, late. <laughs>
1: it's late. I hear you. Like at eight I'm like, oh, I know, gosh. I know. I do all my podcasts at night now because we have no childcare. So I'm used Believe to this. Believe me.
0: I, I understand. Obviously I understand. <laughs> uh, obviously. So anyways, back to your question. So what are we seeing? So, you know, we are absolutely and unfortunately seeing a surge in hospitalizations of children um, with COVID. But what I will say is that we can't yet say whether the severity of disease is sort of different because of the Delta variant. What we think we're really seeing, and I do believe this, is that because it is infecting more and more kids, because it's so transmissible, we're just seeing more and more cases. And unfortunately, When you're infecting more kids, you're probably, and not just probably, we are infecting more kids with underlying medical conditions. And unfortunately, we've known from, you know, very early on in this pandemic that those are the kids that are particularly vulnerable to severe disease from the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19. So, you know, we are seeing sort of this similar case mix in that, you know, we have, a group of kids that are getting by on, you know, high flow nasal cannula. I know you know what that means, Lindsay, but for Mm -hmm. sort of the audience, that's, it's like a little um, prongs in your nose. And instead of blowing in oxygen sort of slowly, it is, has this ability to deliver oxygen really fast and higher amounts of oxygen um, and it's also nice and humidified. So, so we're able to get by on nasal cannula in some kids, however, in others, they might need more breathing support. And in mm-hmm. those children, we, we put them on BiPAP, which is like, I always tell people, if you want to know what BiPAP feels like, you should stick your head out of a window of a moving car at like, you know, 30 to 40 miles an hour. Actually, I'm not recommending that to absolutely anybody, but I'm just trying to give you an idea. (laughs) Please don't do that to anyone. Um, I'm going to get sued. Uh, But I guess I just want to sort of impress upon people sort of how much air is being blown in and out of the lungs. And Mm -hmm. then unfortunately, of course, we're also seeing kids get breathing tubes and we're also seeing some of the complications that we've seen in the adult world. You know, we were seeing kids with clotting problems, with pulmonary embolus, with strokes. And so, you know, a lot of the sort of problems that we've seen in the, on the adult side, we're seeing in kids. Now, I do think it's important to say that the majority of the, the kids that are getting sick and really sick and ending up with me are kids with medical conditions, you know, unfortunately it's preferentially attacking the obese. It is preferentially attacking kids that have chronic lung disease from various reasons, but probably most frequently prematurity. You know, we're seeing it in kids with uncontrolled asthma. And that's an important point too. You know, controlled asthma is not a risk factor. It's actually uncontrolled asthma. And I would say that those are our most common. And I'd be remiss not to mention, too, that we are really preferentially also seeing COVID-19 in you know, our African-American, uh, BIPOC, and uh, Hispanic communities as well. So unfortunately, that has remained constant throughout the pandemic, um, most likely due to sort of low vaccination rates and potentially lower socioeconomic statuses. So the case mix is the same, but it, it feels worse because there are more. And again, I think because we're unfortunately getting to a lot of those kids that, you know, weren't infected before with the less virulent variants before Delta is unfortunately getting to them.
1: Now, if you could put a, you know, percentage rate on it, like, what do you think the percentage rate, how how much do you think it's gone up from last year as to how many kids you're actually admitting with, you know, for COVID, not, not MISC, but just for COVID?
0: I mean, to give you an idea, I mean, I, I mentioned this, and, you know, we were in the news, or my hospital was in the news. So I'm not sharing sort of any privileged information. But um, you know, we've been seeing anywhere from like 10 to 15% of our ICU with COVID. And that's roughly the same number at the worst peak of the pandemic, that I mm-hmm. think that's second wave. Uh, I think a one potential difference and from before is that, you know, in addition to the really sick kids that I take care of in the ICU, we are also seeing kids with milder disease, but that would still be categorized as severe covid because they require oxygen but they're being mm-hmm. cared for on the floor and again that's just a consequence of this delta variant getting to more kids so i hope i don't does that answer your question yeah yeah no it does yeah
1: how are you how are you treating these patients is it mostly just oxygenation or oh. are you also doing steroids and that whole thing
0: oh yeah so mm-hmm. so our MISD treatments haven't changed We're just doing it much, much more and more earlier because we're just so good at detecting it now. Um, It's still that IVIG intravenous immunoglobulin therapy and anakinra are are sort of mainstays. And anakinra is like an immunomodulatory medication. So that's our MISD treatment. And fortunately it works. And Mm -hmm. so we haven't had to change it. For our COVID-19 patients, they, if they are on oxygen, they are getting treated with remdesivir and um, dexamethasone pretty much across the board. And, you know, we do the remdesivir generally for five days, but we can extend it to 10 days and similar to dexamethasone. What I will say is that I have not. Seen anyone in our ICU treated with the monoclonal antibodies? I'm gonna I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured, and mm-hmm. um, but that makes sense, right? Because we all know, you know, from the adult side of the literature, that monoclonal antibodies are really more for mild disease and to prevent you from coming into the hospital, right? But- I do know that some doctors are also using it in the hospital, but we haven't really, we have not been doing that Um, in my hospital. And I I really, you know, I am obviously talked to other PICU doctors across the country and actually in the world. And I'm, there really are not, I have not talked to anyone or seen in any forums, um, people using it in the pediatric ICU. So that's not a medicine that we really have, have adopted.
1: So, not to go down this rabbit hole. Yeah, no, please. But no, really, we can't go down there. But okay, good. We'll knock I'm going to ask a very on the surface question that we sure. we don't need to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Have you treated anybody, any of your kids with ivermectin?
0: Absolutely not. And why, <laughs> I great know. question. And, uh, absolutely great not.
1: <laughs> okay, so tell us why not. There why is... haven't you?
0: zero evidence for ivermectin. And there are very, 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 very dangerous side effects. So that is the sole reason why we have not adopted ivermectin. And we're not going to go down the rabbit hole. But I think you can do a fun Google search to see sort of it's not fun. Actually, it's really sad.
1: It is really sad. It's actually one of the, you know, most depressing things that I've come across on the internet. Yeah, it,
0: it is really sad. It's 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 actually yeah it's sad and it's devastating because it it's it, I feel like this ivermectin like many of the other sort of non-evidence based therapies that somehow emerged are examples real time examples of how misinformation can literally kill people or you know leave them different people than when they took it in the first place so so no. we're not
1: doing
0: it. But good question. (laughs) Now I know why you said that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you know, I mean, many people will argue, well, people have been taking this medication for a long, long time for parasites, and it can be taken, you know, safely and effectively, effectively when, you know, prescribed by a by a provider. Mm -hmm. And sure, that is true. In the setting of a parasite, which again is not a virus, which is not COVID. And a lot of people that are getting this information are, unfortunately, you know, these are people in countries where we have been unable to get them the vaccine. And so, what would you do if that was your family? Well, you would. What's the What's the one thing that I could get for my family that's something affordable, right? Because a lot of these people might not have any money at all, and that will protect my family. Okay, ivermectin. I know that I can get that at some animal food place. And, and then it's, you know, off to the hospital because they took too much. And then they're having, you know, so sure it can be when it's prescribed correctly, but it's just, oh, it's so incredibly devastating. And, uh, you know, and, and not to say there, I mean, can never say never with medicine. We don't have any of the random randomized controlled trials that have come out on ivermectin. So we can't say that it, you know, won't, ever have any type of an effect because we simply don't have that type of a trial. We just have these little small trials. They're just not appropriate to, to say, hey, we have the evidence we need to start using this medication. We just yeah. don't have it. Not to say that we might not ever, but it's not looking good. <laughs>
0: I Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I think you bring up a really important point about like health communication and health honesty, right? Because You know, I know when Ivermectin, and I know you didn't want to go down the rabbit hole, but when Ivermectin first, sort of the whole debacle came on the news, people were making fun of everyone. And, you know, they were saying this is a veterinary medicine. And honestly, those jokes were not isolated to the non-medical community, right? And that's where Health mes- messaging can do harm because if after COVID, hopefully, I'm, I'm saying I know after COVID, after the pandemic, <laughs> if someone needs to be treated with ivermectin, God forbid they tell their doctor, actually, no, I'm not going to take that because, you know, I read that that's a veterinary medicine, right? Right, and right. Actually, it is a real medicine. And yes, it has side effects. And guess what? A lot of medicines we use. Have side effects, but we always make sure that we weigh the risks and benefits before we prescribe it. And I think that's the two big things: is it needs to be prescribed and monitored by a doctor, and and that that's it, right? Is that we need to make make the justification that the risks outweigh the benefits, and that justification has not been made for ivermectin and COVID,
1: but it has been made for the vaccine
0: it has you're absolutely right yeah so we
1: can end that whole little rant right there i guess right i love
0: it that was a great segue <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i yeah okay so is there anything you w- else you wanted to update us on as far as what you are currently seeing and dealing with as a whole
0: i mean i think the one thing that is really important to mention is that covid is one part of what is currently overwhelming hospital systems. And, you know, I mentioned my hospitals on the news, because we've been at capacity or near capacity, frankly, for most of the summer. And that is not unique to my hospital, a lot of hospitals, you know, you've seen sort of horrific stories on the news about Mm -hmm. kids that have, you know, delays in care because of Hospitals that are full, particularly in resource poor areas where they're the only option. So I say that to say that RSV normally is a winter virus and we have been dealing with RSV throughout the summer and it's we feel like it's at currently it's at a almost a rate that we are normally dealing with in the middle of the winter and Now, what's really kind of scaring a lot of us is that we're seeing our first cases of the flu on the East Coast, and that's going to start migrating across the country. So I think what's really concerning to a lot of us is that COVID is real and we are dealing with COVID patients, but we're also dealing with kids that are suffering from RSV, from rhinovirus, which is just Mm -hmm. the common cold and then guess what there are kids that have cancer that need to be taken care of in my ICU in our ICU rather there are kids who had brain surgery that need to be taken care of in our ICU there are kids with you know orthopedic major orthopedic surgeries that need to be taken care of there's kids with sepsis not from covid but from bacteria that need to be taken care of so the fact is is that covid is one piece of the puzzle and Our hospitals are overwhelmed. So this is a time where we all need to take the best possible care of ourselves and do those evidence-based measures to keep all ourselves healthy and our community healthy.
1: And I do think it's a combination of things, right? It's not just COVID. Um, I mean, it certainly is in certain areas, but on the East Coast, especially, you know, up North here, we we don't have a lot of, um, you know, overwhelming COVID cases right now. But what we do have is an outstanding amount of people that have pushed their healthcare off for the past year and a half, thus coming in much sicker than they uh, would have. And, you know, a lot of, you know, unfortunately, outpatient treatment has just taken this complete nosedive. I mean, they started seeing patients via telehealth, which, I mean, oh, wow. it, it, you know, during the, the pandemic. Oh, just during the pandemic. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we're still in it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they just weren't getting the best care. Telehealth is great for some things, but it definitely shouldn't be standard of care. People need to be seen. People need to be examined. And, you know, things were going awry there. So tons of misdiagnoses, uh, people then coming to the ER sicker than normal because they weren't treated appropriately the first or second or third time via telehealth. Yeah. Or you know, a lot of these outpatient facilities are saying, "Oh, anything that's a respiratory symptom, we won't see it." I, and I know like,
0: I've heard that too, and oh I'm my just,
1: gosh, I'm like, in
0: total shock. <sighs> I, uh, it's honestly that is one of the most heartbreaking things I've heard. And I, I will tell you that my hospital system is does not follow that policy. Obviously, we separate sick visits from well visits, but. That is not the case in our institution. And I will tell you, I've heard from so many parents through my social media that, you know, they are like, we keep trying to take our kid to the doctor and they say we have to get a COVID test Then we got a COVID test yeah. and they said we need to get another. And I'm just like, this is not, it's I mean, crazy. this is, I, this is not the time to be delaying care. Um, and I know that's what you're getting at is that, you know, the only way to, mitigate sort of the overwhelm that we're all going through in hospital systems is by doing a lot of preventative care. And uh, sadly, that's being compromised right now.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing it, we're seeing it at the hospitals, and we're seeing it in the emergency rooms. And to be honest, I'm not sure how much longer we can kind of go at this pace without having some serious consequences as far as patient care.
0: I know. And, you know, you say, we have to mention at this point, since you said that, you know, what's going on in Alberta, Canada, where they have literally, they call it triage protocols. But I think what we would think of it as is essentially medical rationing slash decision making in children, not in adults, in children. And their PICU doctors have been tweeting and sort of obviously, they are up in arms, because, you know, all of them are saying, we went into pediatric intensive care to provide care to every single kid that walks into our door. And I looked at those triage protocols, because they they were sharing them. It's essentially similar to what we were considering in adults, you know, earlier in the pandemic, where if your um, risk of mortality is too high, you're going to be put at the bottom of the list to get care. I I have to say they have not gotten there yet to my knowledge, but they are being actively trained in these triage protocols. And it's devastating. And I I mean,
1: I, I, and I know you'll agree. I can never imagine being in that position to have to make that decision. And then to have to, God forbid, even make that decision once and then have to ever go back to work again. Like I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd be
0: you just absolutely devastated,
1: absolutely devastated. I would quit. I'd be depressed. I'd end up like needing significant counseling, and I, I just the amount of pressure we're putting on healthcare workers in in just every every level right now is just it's really heartbreaking, and I think we're going to see. Significant cases of PTSD and oh. depression and anxiety, and 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 we're already seeing that. But I, I think it's it's going to get much worse because I feel like just now, maybe over the past couple of months, we've now felt the effects of what's been going on for the past year and a half. Uh,
0: absolutely, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, we were we were in crisis mode for longer than we should have been, and. You know, when you're in crisis mode, you're not processing. You're moving forward, and you are doing your part, and you feel emboldened to save the world. And I think, unfortunately, that is just that is not that motivation is waning And a oh, lot. Yeah,
1: it's not sustainable.
0: Healthcare. It's not sustainable, and nor should it be. No one should be in crisis mode for almost two years, and that mm-hmm. is the milestone that we're going to be reaching soon. Yeah. Yeah, you I'm I'm glad you mentioned that cuz that, that's honestly is when I saw those tweets I did a whole post on it and that was my bottom line is that if you want to sustain your healthcare workforce, we're going to have to make drastic changes that yes, not the yeah. whole not everyone is going to love, but if you want people to take care of you, then you have to protect them just as much as you're trying to protect yourself and yeah, that's getting the shot and all the other layered protection that I'm sure we'll go
1: into soon. Yeah. And I think it's especially hard too for those that have, I mean, a lot of, you know, medical professionals or people from, you know, the scientific and medical communities have taken to social media to try to educate in their spare time. Okay. Mind you, like not being paid at all and just to try to educate, to save more lives. And it's upsetting for so many reasons one, you know, their, their mental health is just getting stomped on, you know, twice as much as it would had they not been on social media. And I only know that because of it drove me off social media. You know, I'm, I'm,
0: I know, I mean, I, yeah, I I saw what you were doing. And I was like, I, I'm gonna have to do that. At some point, I am gonna have to at least take a break.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's just something you feel pulled to do because we all sign an oath and that's, yeah. you know, we want to help as many people as we can. And that, and that really, really involves social media these days because that's the best way to educate. It's just unfortunate because if these poor people who are like taking the time out of their, their day to, to educate are then also just getting absolutely yeah. <laughs> demolished by people that don't agree with them. And it's just such a shame because it, it,
0: is. it is. Yeah.
1: It's hard not to get down about it, right?
0: It's yeah. Like, no, it is. And it, you know what's funny that you're saying all this is that I just today I got so busy that I decided I was going to like put my phone in a drawer. And I realized, you know, my nanny was here during the day she left. I was spending time with Sita, my daughter. And I was like, I feel, even though I'm exhausted, I'm like, I just feel a little less shaky or stressed than I normally am. And I was like, Oh, I haven't been on social media in several hours. I was like, Oh, no, that's not good. Um, And it really caused me to take a pause and think about it. And my mom also said it, she's like, you know, I'm proud of everything you're doing. But you also have to remember, you need to take care of yourself, your family, your daughter, your job, you know, all that other stuff that used to just be my life outside of social media.
1: Yeah, I know. It's so it's so tough. I mean, taking a week off will be like
0: life changing. Oh, life changing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Changing. Oh my gosh. All right. Let's, I'm going to pull up some of these questions. Okay. There are so many. I'm just going to scroll live here and pick some.
0: All right. You go for it. We haven't even talked about the press release too. So I'm hoping one or two questions are about that.
1: Oh, you know what? Okay. Before we even go into questions, I mean there's like a th- you know a million questions about vaccination. So why don't we briefly talk about what your th- thoughts are as far as you know vaccinations for you know the kiddos 5 years and up.
0: Yeah. So first of all the Pfizer press release was obviously incredibly exciting and I was overjoyed. But, you know, my second reaction was, I need to see the data. You know, mm-hmm. I always say this, show me the data. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I 100% believe Pfizer because I don't think any large company, particularly right now, would falsify data like that. So I do believe it. But I, I also think it's important for everyone to remember that this is not, you know, none of the data has been peer reviewed. It has not been evaluated by the FDA. So so we do need that. You know, that's just a tiny aside. I'm still so excited. I'm excited for several reasons. You know, first of all, they really and I think this these details are important for people to know, particularly the vaccine hesitant, that This was a super rigorous study. First, they wanted to make sure, obviously, that it was safe. Then they wanted to make sure that they found the optimal dose. And what they found was that they did not need the same dose that they were giving to children and adults, you know, 12 and up. So children and adults 12 and up are getting 30 micrograms, and the children between 5 and 11 are only getting 10 micrograms, which is one third the dose. And they did that because they wanted to maintain the neutralizing antibody response while also minimizing side effects because you know tolerability of a vaccine is going to be incredibly important for people to actually get it and then they also wanted to make sure it was safe and I think the most exciting part about the press brief is that the vaccine and the 5 to 11 hit all of those markers let's talk about a little bit about efficacy although I do want to tell everyone, and I, you know, I wrote a whole post about this, that the study was not powered for efficacy, meaning that they didn't have the sample size that they'll be reporting is not the sample size needed to determine efficacy. And that is, I think, a large reason why if anyone noticed in the press brief, I'm sure you did, they didn't say like, you know, how they normally do five people in the vaccinated group got Mm -hmm. breakthrough and, you know, 30 in the unvaccinated. They didn't say that because they didn't power the study for it. I'm sure we'll see that data, but we can't come to those conclusions. But we can say that it is effective um, or efficacious, I would rather say, because that neutralizing antibody response that it elicited was comparable to children, or rather teenagers, 16 to young adults eight, up to age 25. And we have seen... In um, many studies, that the neutralizing antibody response directly translates to efficacy. That's why a lot of the headlines said it looks like it's really efficacious, and and I do think it will be. Again, because of that good antibody response, the tolerability, or you know, referring to the side effect profile, was just the same side effect profile that we're seeing in you know the twelve and up population. So it's. The same stuff we all sort of experience, you know, fevers, myalgias, not feeling great, mostly with that second dose. And I forgot to say it's the same two-dose regimen, 21 days apart. And in terms of safety, there were no serious safety events reported, which is very exciting. And I know people are always, you know, thinking about that really rare side effect, um, myocarditis. Myocarditis, yeah. They did not see any myocarditis in this population. Granted, it was just over 2,000 children, but they didn't see any. So it is really meeting all the markers, and we're going to see it submitted hopefully in the next week. And if they, if the Pfizer manages to submit it in the next week, and I believe they will, we really should expect to have a shot ready to go on our kids' arms by the end of October or Halloween. So crazy. Um, it's insane, but it's also so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. So so that's sort of the summary of the press brief, which was great, but I'm excited for the FDA review.
1: Yes. Excited for that. Okay. So I know a lot of those questions were going to be on that. So, you know, just like the timeline and your recommendations and that sort of thing. Totally. So. And
0: I guess timeline stuff, you know, because I of course, I know, I'm sure you like me who have children who are less than five the timeline for them, it's important to remember that they were included in the study that the Pfizer was talking about. They didn't report the data on the younger age group, but they're included in that study, which means that we should, if they need to enroll more patients, but we should see that data by the end, sort of towards November. And if they can submit it by, you know, beginning of November, so we should hopefully see a shot in our younger kids' arms by this end of December or potentially early next year. So, you know, yeah, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes.
1: I forgot to ask you too. What is, you know, the average age, would you say that you're seeing as far as kids coming in with COVID, you know, with the Delta variant?
0: Yeah. So it is trending older. So we're seeing a lot of teenagers, but we're, we're, we're also seeing some younger kids with underlying medical conditions. But I would say the tween and teenage groups are, are um, most of the kids that we're taking care of. But we absolutely have had some children less than two as well. But I do want to tell you, and I think this is important, that a lot of the children less than two that have COVID also have RSV, rhino uh, human metanema, like all, all these other viruses that can also make them really sick and have respiratory failure or breathing trouble. So it is hard to tell in those kids. Is it the COVID? Is it the combo? Of, you know, and we know that combinations of viruses can make any, even the healthiest of kids sick. So I hope I hope that helps a little bit.
1: Yes. Uh, yes, it does. Okay, so let's see. So, what do you think, as far as testing guidelines, obviously, with our kids back in school or in daycare, it can be really frustrating and hard because you know say they start getting a runny nose, say they yeah. get a fever. you know what do you usually tell people as far as guidelines as to when to get your kid tested
0: so uh, I you know this is such a heartbreaking answer to that question, but unfortunately because the Symptoms of of COVID disease and children are so sort of vast, you know, just diarrhea alone could be COVID, a runny nose could be COVID, a rash could potentially be COVID, although you're probably more in the MISC range. You know, it's really like all these non specific viral symptoms could be COVID. So the truth is, is that if your child is starting to have symptoms, I would recommend you get them tested. The type of test you should do, there are fortunately options and easy at home options and obviously going to testing centers. So we know that PCR tests are the gold standard, but unfortunately in a lot of labs, those can take days to come back. In fact, I don't, I mean, my daughter is now in daycare. I've been very public about this on Instagram. And, you know, we've now, because of that, she's gotten a bunch of colds and we've had to get her tested. I can tell you that it has taken us days to get the PCRs back, but the antigen tests, we get back right away. And so I think it's really important that, you know, before we were saying, okay, get the PCR because that's the gold standard and, you know, we want to make sure. But I, I do think that there's a secondary option that a lot of us are recognizing is could be very similarly effective at capturing illnesses. And it's in that symptomatic population. So if you are symptomatic, if you test on day one and day three of illness with a rapid test, whether that's going to a testing center or buying those at home tests, um, which PS I've actually used several times on. I
1: used one when I was over in um, on our recent trip, I used one actually. And I mean, it's very, very easy to use. It's so pretty easy. cool. It's like a pregnancy test. But exactly.
0: <laughs> not nearly exactly as right. fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the not fun part is that you got to, you, know, you know, we're in healthcare. So we're like, all right, let's stick it up there. But, you know, people, <laughs> I think the big caveat with the at-home test is, you know, you have to be You're willing. you not putting to
1: it work. where it needs to go. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the rapid testing, I recommend, and not just me, but the data supports this, to if you want to do a rapid test, do it on day one and day three of illness. And what that does is that, um, you know, day three of illness with the Delta variant is your period of being most infectious. So it's that time where you can capture the most virus. But you know, these tests are quite good. So even on day one of illness, it is also capturing many, many diseases. Now, if you want to If you want to do the PCR, obviously that's a gold standard, but I will tell you, even the PCR can have false negatives and because it has it's very low level, but it depends when you test. And as I just said, day three of illness, whether you're doing antigen or PCR is going to be your time of highest yield. So I know I just gave you a lot more information than you asked for as per usual, but um, what I will say (laughs) is day one and day three, rapid tests. And really, you can do a PCR whenever and particularly you're asymptomatic, let's say, you know, a lot of people are in the situation where they get the notification that their child was exposed. The truth is, is that a PCR is going to be much better and asymptomatic, but you can still do the rapids, but it's not going to be as high yield.
1: Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So three quick ones before we jet off here. 855. See, I'm being mindful of time. Okay.
0: Oh, you're so So, (laughs) sweet.
1: But these are all really great. And there are so many questions. I wish we could get to a lot of them. But you know, these are these are all great. And I think a lot of them are repetitive. So let's see here. Long COVID in children. Are you seeing this at all?
0: So I am not an outpatient doctor. So I cannot say that I personally am seeing it. But I have read most if not all of the studies and what I will tell you is that and I actually it's funny because I did a post on this a long time ago and the numbers have not long you know weeks I like how I'm saying a long time ago (laughs) uh, you know forever a year ago no it's like literally weeks ago Um, but it feels long in the world of COVID because everything's changing so you know, the initial studies were really alarming, and I'm sure a lot of your followers, and I know a lot of my followers saw that really scary New York Times headline that was like, you know, the kids are not okay, they're all getting long COVID, and they were reporting rates anywhere from one to as high as 33%. They 33% of kids are absolutely not getting long COVID. So there was there was a lot of issues with a lot of these studies. And the major issue is that. It's based on self-reporting. So as you can imagine, I don't know how you would tell that a 13-year-old necessarily has brain fog, especially if they may have had symptoms of, you know, inattention, etc., prior. And unfortunately, some of the tools they use to do the self-reporting did not go into symptoms prior to getting the COVID infection. A secondary thing that is in incredibly important is that all almost all the early studies, there were no case controls, meaning all they did was look at a cohort of patients who had COVID and saw if they had any symptoms of long COVID after their initial infection. And that I think is where a lot of the inflated results happened. When they actually matched it with case controls, a lot of the studies were inconclusive. So what's exciting is they've now pooled a lot of that data and done some meta-analyses to see, you know, what is actually happening? And many of the studies, once they really pulled the data and/or looked at case control showed that yes, uh, some kids are developing symptoms of long COVID, but almost across the board, they're resolving by 12 weeks. So it's very different from the adult world, where you know people are having symptoms months and months and months later if they have any of the symptoms. It's only as far as 12 weeks in almost all of our kids. And I think most of us are starting to believe that the rate of long COVID is more in the single digits and honestly, probably in the 1% to 3% range. So it's rare. The symptoms are very similar to adults. You know, they're getting brain fog, fatigue, exercise intolerance. They can't pay attention. They have insomnia Unfortunately, they're having some symptoms of anxiety, potentially depression. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but, you know, it it really is the same symptoms. And it's sad. And I don't want to minimize that 12 weeks of any of these symptoms, even in one person, let's say it is as low as 1%. That's not a minuscule number when you're talking about, you know, half a million kids getting COVID in the past two weeks. Oh, Yeah. So 1% sounds low, but when you apply it to a huge amount of patients, it's not that low anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, okay. I know a lot of people have been, you know, talking about natural immunity and,
0: yes. Yes. and
1: why doesn't it count? And I, I do, I, I do think that it should count, you know, and it's, and it's just a matter of like how much should it count and all of that. But like, let's just kind of, you know, focus on the kids would you recommend vaccinating your child if they were of age? You know, obviously this is going to be for kids five and up for now, but Mm -hmm. if they had already had prior COVID infection.
0: 100%. -hmm. So, you know, what the data shows is that, and you're absolutely right, that um, natural immunity counts. It does count. But the problem is, is that it, we don't know how much it counts in the sense that, especially in some earlier studies They tested antibody levels and found that people that had asymptomatic or really mild symptoms had really quickly waning immunity. You know, in in six months, there were people that had no antibodies. There were some that and these are small studies. So I'm not going to report percentages because I just I don't think it's a it's just hard to present. And I think the numbers can scare people when you really shouldn't be doing, you know, again, they're very small studies. But Mm -hmm. what, what we can say is that it counts. But there are some patients that really are not mounting robust responses to COVID. And again, they're mostly in the asymptomatic and mild disease patients. But even in the patients that have severe disease, they just don't seem to be mounting the same long antibody response that we're longer rather antibody response than what we're getting with our vaccines. So because of that variability, because we have no, we're not going to be testing quantitative immunoglobulins on every single person, that would be fiscally impossible. And just, you know, I don't think it's practical. But what we are doing is, you know, I think, because we don't know, we have to vaccinate as if, as if they didn't have an infection right now, had never had an infection. And if it were my child, I would not hesitate, I would 100% vaccinate them, give the two dose series with the knowledge that with that second dose, they might have more reactogenicity, meaning they're having more of those side effects like fever, fatigue, myalgias, chills, you know, than potentially a person that never had COVID. And I'm saying that actually from some of our booster data, because we know that people who are getting the boosters, and again, we don't have enough data, obviously, but it does appear that people are, because they have enough immune, you know, enough immunogenicity against COVID, they are reacting to that booster and really attacking it. And that can make them feel a little crummy. So I think that's sort of a perfect corollary to um, what you can expect if you've had COVID and do the full dose series. But bottom line is yes, do the full dose series, no question.
1: Yeah. And obviously, this is just one person. But Speaking from experience, uh, my husband had it, you know, March of 2020. And, you know, was enrolled in a study where he had his antibodies drawn every couple of months. And, you know, by months five or six, they were essentially gone completely. And again, this doesn't take into account other parts of our immune system, but it still would worry me if I was that person, like, well, where the heck did they go? (laughs) Like, do I have any immunity left? You know, and that is going to vary very differently person to person. You could test a different person a year later, and they would have the same amount. It's, it's just, it's so unreliable as far as using that as a marker of like natural immunity and like, contributing to herd immunity. You know what I mean? It's just
0: exactly You hit the nail on the head. And I'm I'm really glad you mentioned, you know, we've got those memory B and T cells that are definitely doing stuff. (laughs) Lots of stuff. But you know, but you know, it's just, Without knowing how much protected you are, do you really want to play that Russian roulette? Yeah. I I certainly don't, not with what I'm saying. You know, my recommendation would be be to get it.
1: Okay, last one. And this one. No, I'm here. This one just kind of threw me. So. This is one of those. I just, you know, when you just get these, you know, some questions and you're just like, oh, it's just like a punch in the gut. And you're like, oh, gosh, why? I don't even like here. This must be another thing that people are saying. So let's clear this up. I've heard there's an uptick in MISC in vaccinated kids. Can you speak to this? What is this about? Have you heard this yet? No. I, I
0: have not heard. I'm sure I will. I mean, I have like a thousand unread DMs, which yes. I'm slowly getting through. So potentially, uh-huh. um, I see every day I sort of chip away at it. But no, we have not seen that. I think what the, what they're getting at is our initial worry with the vaccine and why we were testing lower doses is because there was this theoretical risk that the back it was a risk and a really more of a question can the vaccine cause misc covid causes misc and the answer is we never saw that so i think that's where your follower was getting that question is that hey i i remember this rumbling a long time ago Mm -hmm. did this pan out and the answer is it didn't
1: sure Yeah, I mean, and it's a reasonable, and that is a reasonable question to say, hey, listen, you know, we know that COVID can cause blood clots and strokes and PEs and all of those things are very, very scary. Well, you know, what are the risks if I get the vaccine then?
0: Absolutely. And And, I think it's a very
1: reasonable question.
0: Absolutely. It is. And, And it goes back to what we've been talking about really throughout this pod is that, it's always a risk benefit analysis. But you know, the good news is that there's a lot of smart people who are doing that risk benefit analysis Mm -hmm. for us. And they're being transparent with the data. There's no hiding, you know, all the side effects, even the serious ones have been reported, although serious ones were very rare. And you know, the good news is that it's transparent reporting with a lot of super smart people that are weighing those risks and benefits. And then a lot of healthcare workers who are reading the data as well, and coming to the same conclusion. So when you have a lot of smart people making those decisions, and assessments, and then getting the shot in their own arms, we're not just telling people to do it, we're doing it ourselves, then that's probably some good, uh, Good evidence that it's working and that we believe it's working.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is there's like a microscope on everything being done with the vaccine, right? I mean, oh yeah. There has not been anything else as far as a, prob- a like a, a treatment modality that's ever had this much attention on it before. And so it would be really hard to misstep or like not, you know, like miss something. Absolutely at this point. I mean, it, it's incredible. And to to have, I don't even know what the numbers are as far as how many people have received the vaccine at this oh, point, but it is God, an incredible yeah, amount of people. We would have seen if there was something absolutely detrimental that would have happened. And like you said, nothing's without risk. I mean, you go to the medicine cabinet, you have a headache and you take Tylenol. There are risks related to taking Tylenol. And I mean, goodness gracious, there's risks related to eating crappy food. (laughs) Um,
0: Exactly right. Yeah. I mean,
1: every day we're doing a risk-benefit analysis with everything we do to our bodies. If we don't work out, that's a risk-benefit analysis. We're, We're making the decision not to move our bodies, which can be unhealthy and it, it, you know, it's just, yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about this, but <laughs> no,
0: no, no. And I mean, you're, you're right. We could. And I mean, I think what you're, what you're referring to as well is like this mental load that every person, every parent, every daughter, son, grandparent, etc. we're, we are literally, we've always done risk benefit analyses, just like you said, but COVID has required, like practically stepping out the door to be a risk benefit of, you know, who am I going to encounter? Should I wear a mask if I'm outdoors because risk is low? Oh, I, you know, it's like, there's just so many, it's like a decision tree that never ends. Yeah. And not going to end until we sort of get on the other side of this.
1: Right, and it can be really confusing for many, including yeah. myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh gosh, I mean, it is—it is confusing for all of us, which I yeah. think is why we're all reading more scientific literature than potentially we have ever done in our entire <laughs> lives. <laughs> exactly
1: and to emphasize how incredibly difficult it can be to pick apart scientific literature like oh
0: gosh yeah i yeah. mean
1: i have a hard time at times being like okay let me dissect this you know and sure. figuring out sure. where the biases are and figuring out i mean there is so much to it and to just have lay public yeah. interpreting it however they see fit is just been really hard it has but it's yeah. I mean, people go to school for a long time to, to to be able to decipher these studies. We
0: all go to school for a long time, and we are not even perfect when we graduate. You know, it's this constant learning. And I'm saying this from the point of uh, like NIH-funded researcher. I'm still learning and getting better, even though I run my own studies. We mm-hmm. no one is perfect. We are learning constantly, but you get better and better the more you do, and the more you learn from people and mentors that, you know, have devoted their whole lives to this. So you're, I'm so glad, you know, you're making up as per usual, you're making all these great points and it's true, you know, it requires so much education and learning to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. And I just think it's important to emphasize whenever possible, just because, you know, there's a lot floating around and, you know, a a lot of it is, oh, I saw this preprint and it's like, oh.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I try to stay away from the preprints. I mean, I'll read them quickly, but I'm like, I'm going to wait till the full peer. Yeah,
1: Yeah. And, you know, just a quick takeaway for people listening. A a preprint is not something you want to take away, you know, set in stone. That's something that hasn't been peer reviewed. And it's just like if you... Oh gosh, let's see. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were to go publish a book without ever proofreading it and would there be a spelling mistake. You know, like I don't know, and maybe that's not a great analogy, but it's just it's not something you you want to take and then run off with and say, no. "Oh my gosh, look at this."
0: You know, it would almost be like buying milk from the store without any quality control at the, you know, at the plant or something. So no one was testing it. And yet you were still told to drink it. Like would I drink milk that has, I am not sure if anyone has made sure is pasteurized. Mm -hmm. No, and I'll definitely not give that to my kid. It's just like, you know,
1: research and health information. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I know how busy you are, and I always love talking to you. No,
0: I, I know this is a problem. We like talking to each other too much. I, so, it, you know, <laughs> I love, I was so, I mean, the second you were like, I I, I jumped at the chance because I love chatting with you. And, and I just, you know, it's great to, you have such an amazing platform and you're using it for such good. So, I appreciate know, it. So
1: involved. do you. So do you. And I appreciate so much what you're trying to do in. <laughs> all of that spare time you have, which is oh my God. <laughs> very limited. <laughs> um, yeah, but really, I mean, you're amazing. And thank you for what you're doing with all the kiddos. It's much appreciated.
0: Thank you for all you do. Not only are you taking care of patients and your kids, but you are also spending so much time to educate and amplify. And it's just, yeah, we need more people like you that use their platform for good.
1: We're in it together, right?
0: We are in it together.
1: (laughs) All right. I know that everybody will take something from this, the MISC podcast, if you didn't listen to it. That one was back, oh gosh, what was it? Maybe March or April, but that I think was episode three. And that was a really good one if you wanted to listen to that one as well. So thank you, Dr. Patel. I want you to... Go to bed for at least eight hours right now. Oh
0: my god, I don't even. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) What?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, at least you know, at least half that.
0: Absolutely, you know what? I can do that.
1: (laughs) Oh, I know. Insomnia is a real B right now, you know?
0: Oh, Oh, God. Yeah, that, God. I mean, I could talk about for hours. I would, yes. Even if I stay up till two working, I get in bed and I'm just sort of staring at the ceiling. I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, it was great talking with you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today.